Radio. Liberal Education and the Importance of a Common Culture. A presentation by Professor Jim Gaston at the Christopher Dawson Centre for Cultural Studies 2017 Colloquium. Good afternoon. It's an honor to be with all of you today. Before I begin my presentation, I wish to thank my good friend David Daintree and the Christopher Dawson Center for Cultural Studies for inviting me to take part in the summer's 2017 colloquium. As Dr. Daintree has clearly noted in our theme, a proper understanding of liberal education is essential if we are to foster uh, the good life in general, and especially if we're to do so within the context of modern society. Subject somewhat akin to our previous speakers. I'm not sure I'm going to add much helpful to that. That was very well done, by the way. Um, this colloquy marks an important step in our continuing deliberation on such matters, and it's a pleasure to join all of you in this vital endeavor. The title of my paper is Liberal Education and the Good Life, Christopher Dawson, The Dynamics of Migration and the Importance of a Common Culture. And this, I think, complements very much a number of papers, including the ones we just heard. I will parallel our theme, uh, but with an especial emphasis on the essential nature of common culture and the dynamic aspects of cultural change. Now, I readily admit this is an exceedingly complex and daunting subject, and one that might well have benefited from, a, from more limitation and constraint. Uh, furthermore, I can easily imagine that one might ask, why would further complicate such matters by including the issue of the dynamics of migration? Well, the answer is somewhat simple. Throughout the history of mankind, the movement of peoples and the ensuing culture inter cultural interaction has played a profound role in the development and life of societies. In fact, aside from the primary role of religion, such human diffusion may well constitute the second most important formative factor in the social life of man. However, the scale and the impact of modern migration and the manifold effects associated with such diffusion are well beyond anything we've witnessed thus far in human history. Therefore, if we are to appreciate and live a good life in light of this present-day global experience, then I would suggest it's essential that we learn anew how to understand the causes of human migration and the nature of its effect upon culture. Now, it's self-evident that this ubiquitous phenomenon of modern migration will continue to task many of our lives for years to come. But I wish to make clear at the outset this paper is not an argument per se for or against the myriad national and international debates regarding contemporary worldwide human migration. Rather, it's an attempt to consider cultural migration as an important example of how modern education diminishes our reflections on the good life, because it fails to be truly liberal and holistic in its treatment of the common and fundamental dynamics of human social life. This paper seeks to attenuate this inadequacy, as do the other excellent papers in this colloquium. Now my thesis, therefore, is this, <clears throat> that a truly liberal and holistic educational paradigm is needed if we're to reflect honestly upon the nature of the good life, and that such an educational model will succeed only to the extent that it focuses upon human culture. And the most common and foundational qualities of culture must be understood, including the role of migration and diffusion as key dynamic causes of cultural change. Once this is done, we can consider anew a number of the aspects of modern life, including our notion of the good life. Dawson's vision of the meaning and matter of culture, as well as that of liberal education, is essential to this, to this effort. 
I will frame my argument primarily in light of his thought and draw upon other thinkers as appropriate along the way. Now, those of us <clears throat> familiar with the thought of Christopher Dawson already know that framing an argument in light of the vision of this great Catholic historian is no easy task. Dawson was one of the most brilliant thinkers in the Western tradition, and he conveyed an extensive knowledge and insight. His extensive knowledge and insight by way of some 30 books and over 200 articles, treating literally the history and life of mankind. His interpretation of the Western Roman Catholic Church in particular stands as a monument of seminal thought to this day. For those less familiar with Dawson, it's important to understand that he was first and foremost a cultural historian. But more importantly, he was also a truly Catholic humanitarian and intellectual, and in that he strove to study the human condition in its broadest realistic sense, so as to understand better the true nature, life, and end of man. Furthermore, like many of his post-World War I contemporaries, he was concerned with what he and others often referred to as the 20th century crisis of Western civilization. Dawson feared we had arrived at a crucial turning point in the history of the West and the world, and he was dedicated in his search to understand why and how we might have arrived at such, at, uh, such a, uh, a, a critical and a detrimental point in the great pilgrimage of the West and mankind. In order to understand this plight, Dawson nearly alone argued for and demonstrated how a holistic study of culture, including both its spiritual and material aspects, was essential to any truly intelligible knowledge and understanding of man, especially modern man. And this, I believe, was the central and unifying theme and end of all of his work. And the inherent truth of it continues to resonate among many of us today. Now, the point is that it's impossible to summarize adequately his synthetic and truly profound vision. And as our theme emphasizes, his unit of vision is often inimical to the modern academic penchant for specialization, as well as our own inclination to perfect our understanding of our own often limited scholarly interests and research. Such a scientific, analytical, and subjective approach was definitely criticized by Dawson in his classic book, The Crisis of Western Education, and in the opening chapters of his exceptional work, Progress in Religion, among others. These two books alone are exceptionally synthetic and pivotal works, an understanding of which requires at least a modicum of liberal educational foundation, as well as a working knowledge of a number of attendant natural and social science disciplines. So rather than try to recapitulate Dawson's vision, I would like to suggest another conceptual vantage point for presenting his vast corpus of ideas. This approach is to be focused, is to be found by focusing briefly on Dawson's concept of culture, followed by a review of, the, of his notion of the dynamics of cultural change as an important introductory key to his overall philosophy of culture and history. This will prepare the way for a more particularistic uh, sweep, uh, and, and thorough sweep of, in consideration of the role of migration and diffusion in a liberal educational paradigm that focuses on the good life by way of the importance of a common culture. Now, why is the study of culture and dynamics of cultural change so important to Dawson? Because he would argue it offers us the only true key to an intelligible understanding of man in general and of man in his particular temporal and spatial context. In effect, the study of culture reveals man's notion of the good life and the manner by which he goes about trying to attain it. Man is by nature social, and this principle informs Dawson's notion that culture, as well as the common way of life by which a people adapts its vision and good life 
to the constraints and possibilities of a place or region is essential. The vision of the good life gives impetus and structure to the common social effort to reach it. This common vision and effort constitutes man's cultural life. And here the key point to be made is that culture by its very nature is dynamic, not static. To state matters in another way, in order to understand ourselves, we need to appreciate man as a spiritual and material composite being with a vision of how and why he ought to go about seeking perfection and how we should do so within a dynamic, comprehensive, and complex web of cultural activity. Now, it should be immediately evident Dawson's focus on culture is really a type of abstraction, for his point of view is applicable to any and every culture, regardless of location, time, or structure. His goal is self-knowledge. And by this I mean he seeks an intelligible appreciation of the nature of man by way of culture, by means of the ensemble of actual ways that man proceeds with the living of life. Dawson eschews expansive view, and instead prudently embraces a realistic investigation of culture as a whole. Such an approach, in effect, marks the restoration, or perhaps more accurately constitutes the perfection of a liberal educational perspective as compared to such generally accepted specialized approaches to the study of man history by way of past politics or famous or charismatic leaders or the proponents of great ideas or the byproduct of work or economic conflict or the manifestations of material natural forces and processes. Rather, such a true liberal and holistic approach cuts across all these philosophies or perspectives and actually unites them, sifts them, and justly interprets them, and hence man. At this point, we should again briefly remind ourselves of some of Dawson's famous pronouncements concerning culture, namely, his definition that culture is simply the common way of life of a people, that both the spiritual and the material aspects should be considered, as the former constitutes the intellectual or moral principle, and the latter the material or biological expression and context of it, that the vision of a people gives direction to is revealed and refined in and by its social material structures. Their religion is the form and the, and the social and natural realms are the matter. That the dynamic synthesis of the, two of the two constitutes an ongoing common way of life of a people. That the process by which a culture is handed on by society and acquired by the individual constitutes enculturation. That education is but a limited and specialized form of enculturation and should not be confused with it. And that this common way of life of a people constitutes its cultural identity and its development and inheritance are revealed in its corporate history. But as regards our present consideration, the more important aspect of Dawson's notion of culture are, is to a number. The first that a culture is a common way of life of a people and is composed of a complex, dynamic integration of intellectual and biological aspects, and that the dynamic calls interplay of these elements must be understood if the culture is to be interpreted in an intelligible manner. Second, that it is essential that the culture's tradition, the meaning and matter of its life, be conveyed to succeeding generations. Otherwise, the culture will collapse or be conquered as its members become alienated from it. But cultures don't just appear. And their integral unity is not static. How do they come to how do they come about and develop? How do cultures change? This brings us to the main subject of this paper. Dawson argues that cultures develop and change, uh, that a common way of life arises 
as a people adapts itself to the demands and possibilities of a place or region. Let me repeat that. It's essential to his thought. He argues that the culture is the common way of life by which a people adapts itself to the, to the demands and possibilities of a place or region. The human or geographical milieu presents possibilities for a way of life. But man's religious perspective, or his intellectual acumen or understanding of such a milieu, influences the possibilities he ultimately chooses and how he contrives to survive within the matrix of his localized world. Henceforth, cultural change depends upon successive intellectual or material influences and choices. However, such possibilities and choices are not endless. Nature and reason acts as a partial check on the abstract presumptions of man. For example, the great 19th century French Catholic sociologist Friedrich Laplay identified six primary nature occupations which constituted the foundations of, the material, of material cultures. In other words, there are, there are particular types of cultures that seem to embody man's inchoate intellectual capacity to discern, to reason, and to form relations with the material realm. But the main point to be made is that such cultures, <clears throat> is that such cultures based upon primary na nature occupations rarely remain static. Indeed, Dawson's main point is that the history of mankind, its cultural development or change gen generally conceived, is due not to a single uniform law of progress that posits cultural change as a continuous and uniform movement, a view held consciously or not as part of the modern humanistic educational paradigm. Rather, cultural development or change is, a, is an exceptional condition due to a number of distinct causes, which often operate irregularly or and spasmodically, end quote. In short, such distinct causes of cultural change are due, as noted below, to the actual migration of people, or the diffusion of their ideas or their artifacts. In other words, cultural change is primarily caused by migration, or the concomitant effects associated with the diffusion of various conceptual or material elements of cultures. Regardless of the cause, one must recognize on the one hand that there is an inherent dynamic quality to any and every culture due to human fecundity and man's innate search for reason perfection. And yet on the other hand, Dawson insists that it is of crucial importance that one recognize the nature and efficacy of the dynamism of cultural change and note that it is dependent primarily upon the intellectual purview of the culture. Cultural change will take place only if, and to the degree that, it is in harmony with the culture's common vision of reality, or the good life, as we are speaking of it here today. Given this dynamic interplay between the cultural vision and the actual cultural change, Dawson identifies five major types or dynamics of possible historical or cultural change. And each type is rooted in the nature of man and culture, and each is related to the dynamics of migration and diffusion. First, <clears throat> there is a simple case of a people that developed its way of life in its original environment without the intrusion of human factors from the outside. Here such cultural changes due to innovation that generally takes place within an isolated milieu. The change consists of a more perfected or more functionally harmonious cultural integration with the isolated matrix of the natural milieu. Once the harmonious relationship ensures basic survival, the culture often remains uh, static even for centuries, bar other sporadic innovations. 
The spatial source of innovative change constitutes the cultural hearth and the origin of diffusion. Such innovative change is indicative of primitive precultures, as Dawson defines them, and they don't really concern us here. Second, there is the case of a people which comes to a new geographical environment and readapts its culture in consequence. In effect, a culture diffuses itself. It moves to a new place and reintegrates and forms a common way of life within the constraints and possibilities of the environment or milieu. This is classic migration, and it is expressed best in the formation of the United States uh, and, I would suggest, Australia. Colonization in general is a form of such migration, though the purpose and scale make it more limited, a more limited and specialized situation. Third, there is the case of two different peoples, each with their own way of life and social organization, which mix with one another, usually as a result of conquest, occasionally as a result of peaceful contact. This is the most typical and important of all causes of cultural change since it sets up an organic process of fusion and change, which transforms both the people and the culture, and produces a new cultural entity in a comparatively short space of time. Dawson argues that this process is tripartite. First, there comes a period of silent growth. Then there is a period of intense cultural activity, where new forms of culture arise as a result of the vital union of the two previous ways of life. Then there is the final period in which the, cult the new culture reaches maturity, either by absorbing the new elements of the original people or by attaining a permanent balance between the two, creating a new cultural variation. Such cultural change is termed acculturation, and the process whereby one culture absorbs or dominates another. If the fusion constitutes absorption, it is referred to as assimilation. If the fusion produces a new culture that is more of a mixture or a compound, it is referred to as cultural amalgamation. This is the most prevalent, the most basic global manner of cultural change. Fourth, there's the case of a people that adopts some element of material culture which has been developed by another people elsewhere. But, as he notes, it is remarkable how often such external change leads not to social progress, but to social decay. As a rule, to be progressive, change must come from within. This change, due to the adoption of some element of material culture, we would consider a form of syncretism. Fifth, there's a case of a people which modifies its way of life owing to the, to the adoption of new knowledge or beliefs, or some change in its view of life and its conception of reality. In other words, the cultural change is due to the introduction and acceptance of new ideas. And as Dawson notes, Quote, the existence of reason increases the range of possibilities and the fulfillment of instinctive purpose. For reason is itself a creative power, which is ever organizing the raw material of life and sensible experience into an ordered cosmos of an intelligible world, a world which is not a mere subjective image, but corresponds in a certain measure to the object of reality, end quote. This change, by way of adoption of some conceptual aspect of culture, is likewise considered syncretic. Now, as regards the methodological approach or study of such integral complex change, that's a subject I'll leave to another time. The main point to be made regarding these very dynamics of cultural change is that they are due, as just noted, to the actual migration or diffusion of people, to the diffusion of their ideas or their artifacts, possibly leading to a syncretic fusion 
or to the acculturation of peoples to one degree or another. They are not doing an abstract Western notion of progress, nor is such cultural change wholly or even predominantly the result of an authoritarian, learned, or intellectual class of a culture, nor is it the result of some kind of materialistic determinism or implacable technological order. Rather, cultural change occurs when the society as a whole, imbued with its vision of the good life, forms a common way of life that is in dynamic relationship with its natural and cultural environment. The implications of such ch cultural change due to innovation, and especially diffusion, impact all the social sciences and humanities, and especially the historical profession. Stated succinctly, the story of a culture or a people, in Dawson's mind, is, so to speak, simply or profoundly the story of the life and characteristic cultural development or change, the historical and cultural pilgrimage, if you will, of a people. Now, such is the framework or foundation of my paper. My argument has thus far been that the search for the good life requires a true liberal educational vision and method is holistically focused on the spiritual and material aspects of human culture, and that this approach must likewise remain cognizant of the directive role of the culture's vision of the good life and the dynamic role of migration and diffusion. Our interpretation of a culture depends on an accurate explication of its vision of the good life and the manner in which such a vision reveals itself in the impetus and structure of a common social way of life, especially as, as the culture seeks the good and the useful in all that it does. Still, Dawson emphasizes that the most important and leading cause of cultural life is man's vision of reality. If this be so, if the historical development of a people is really, in a way, an explicative chronicle of their lives as lived in and through time and space, how does one communicate their story, their history? Does it become, in effect, a cultural biography? Is it, as Richard Geertz might hold, nothing but a thick description of their odyssey? To some degree, the answer to that question is yes. And yet the permutations of cultural change associated with the dynamics of innovation, and especially migration or diffusion, are not infinite. There are patterns that arise due to the nature and limitations of the mind and those of the human and geographical milieu. And Fred Friedrich Chopin identified some of those for us. Such patterns can be ascertained. However, they rarely present themselves as discrete structures, events, or periods. Rather, they are, in a sense, models or paradigms that must be understood. Furthermore, Another key aspect of Dawson's notion of cultural change is his vision of the importance of localized factors, especially those factors that characterize a place or region. And this kind of natural inherent spatial unity further complicates, even as it enriches, our understanding of such matters. So, is it possible to conceive of a truly interpretive, cultural, localized, and dynamic understanding of man in the present? Yes, it is. But this brings us back to our opening considerations of the importance of a liberal education as the basis for our understanding of the good life. Thus, Dawson points the way, but his vision is hard to grasp unless one becomes fairly familiar with his work and methodological discussions. And it, to the degree that one develops such a culturally based liberal educational vision for themselves. Therefore, the best way to introduce ourselves to Dawson's cultural vision as it pertains to the good life is to try to identify and briefly examine some of the more important actual patterns of the dynamics of historical and cultural change that permeate his vision or derive naturally from it. 
this is my goal in this third and final part of the paper. And I apologize beforehand for what might appear to be a number of disjointed observations, but this is really the best I can do in a paper of this length. I will proceed by posing some questions and then answer them. First and foremost, <clears throat> the question we should ask ourselves is what constitutes the good life? Dawson argued that the religious vision of a people constitutes its version of the good life, and the culture as a whole is in fact imbued with the religion's tenets. As he astutely observed in his preface to progress in religion, quote, every living culture must possess some, some spiritual dynamic which provides the energy necessary for that sustained social effort, which is civilization. Normally, this dynamic is supplied by religion. But in exceptional circumstances, the religious impulse may disguise itself under philosophical or political forms. It is this vital relation between religion and culture which I, Dawson, have attempted to study in the present book." Unquote. In light of this quote, I think there are three answers to the question of what constitutes a good life. First, a good life for pre-modern cultures is defined, frankly, by their religious vision. Second, for those cultures imbued by more philosophical or political forms, it would primarily be that culture which arose with the birth of the modern. Thirdly, there is a Catholic notion of the good life. However, Dawson reaffirms that the cultural liberal educational approach is required even here for an intelligent understanding of Catholic culture as it is for other cultures. Furthermore, there is the Catholic spiritual dimension of the role of the incarnation in the formation of the church and mutandus mutandus in the formation of the individual, who in turn plays the active role in the formation of the culture. Second question, why is a common culture so important? Because man is a social being and cannot perfect himself without the help of others. But the actualization of such perfection can only take place in a communal relationship to the material context or environment in which the culture finds itself. Therefore, the cultural vision, be it religious or philosophical or political, must permeate the common way of life, especially in the formation and development of civilization. Third, why must the culture be passed on? Or why is enculturation so important? Because it is essential to the well-being of the individual that they understand the cultural vision of the good life and can partake in the effort to secure it. If such a cultural identity and way of life is not conveyed to the next generation, the culture, as mentioned, will collapse, be conquered, or the individual will be alienated and fail to join the community in its search for perfection. Fourth, what role does a liberal education play in such a cultural continuity? This is an interesting question, because as Dawson notes time and again, the true and complete, and complete continuity of culture is found in the broad and holistic act of enculturation, whereas previous notions of education are focused on much more limited forms of activity and knowledge. However, in the modern world, a liberal education properly understood is almost, has become almost necessary to a critical interpretation and assessment of the faults, irrational, and undignified focus of the, on the material aspects of reality and the human condition. Just such a restored or perfected liberal educational paradigm is the subject of, partially the subject of this colloquium. Fifth, how does all this apply to modernity? Well, that is a difficult question to answer, as we well know. Overall, I think Dawson's essay on the bourgeois mind captures the issue. Ultimately, it is a question of temperament. 
the bourgeois attitude is focused not on the qualitative, but on the quantitative aspects of reality. It is a way of life rooted in the human natural desire to calculate, rather than to love and give of oneself. Dawson summarizes, in some, in some sense of the term, by quoting St. Augustine's proclamation that two loves built two cities. The modern world has built a social, political, and economic city that, that does not, as St. Thomas notes, involve any honorable or necessary end. End quote. As such, <clears throat> authority has moved to the realm of the sovereign state, and the vivacious, localized, common way of life of cities and regions has been replaced by nation-state civilizations bent on the centralized control of a deracinated, undignified, amorphous life of workers who are often, in effect, bound to urbanized industrial and technological servitude. The vision driving this cultural movement, besides the bourgeois mind, is the modern physico-mathematical model of the sciences and the advance of a generic vision of scientism that creates a technologically-based, standardized cultural way of life. Sixth, where does modern global migration fit in with all of this? It has been fostered by the movement toward global economic order, and in many ways it continues to drive it. The end view of the good life for the migrant worker is mainly one of economic self-survival, and one that often generates a concomitant tension at the local level of the culture. The Catholic notion of an ecclesial worldwide spiritual culture that honors local life and pietistic practice has been replaced by the uniform globalist vision and structure. And in the process, as Meriton notes, local ethnic communities or urban ethnic ghettos fail to foster a meaningful, dignified, and truly civilized common way of life. The modern mantra is one of diversity. But diversity does not of itself build a common way of life. Multiplicity does not of itself engender unicity. Rather, it fosters an acceptance of national and global statist humanism and power, because differences in religion, language, and culture must in fact be justified and controlled. This was and is one of the key elements uh, of, the, of, of what Dawson uh, termed the crisis of the 20th century, and it's something he foresaw and lamented. Seventh, and finally, uh, what are we to do? Many of us believe that it is essential that, that we restore a proper notion of liberal education so that we can discern what in fact constitutes a good life and comprehend the manner in which such a life can be maintained and nurtured. Such an effort must be based upon a Christian notion of the dignity of man, but it also, but it also must be worked out at the local subsidiary level as best we can, and we do so best by noting the true dynamics of culture and using them for the good. In the end, such a liberal vision will reaffirm our understanding of what truly is, and in turn will help us prudently to ascertain what truly can be. The Catholic Christian notion of the good life is one of incarnational peace. Dawson has reminded us how to find such a vision and way of life, and we should continue to know well his counsel and advice. Thank you. That was Professor Jim Gaston with Dawson and the Dynamics of Migration, Liberal Education, and the Importance of a Common Culture. This presentation was part of the Christopher Dawson Center for Cultural Studies 2017 Colloquium on the theme Liberal Education 
restoring the notion of education as the basis for living the good life, which was hosted in Hobart, Tasmania. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.